Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. Well, welcome back uh, to uh, the Seth Leibson Show. I am Seth Leibson, and it is a delight to have, as we do most Wednesdays, Congressman John Chadig in uh, studio with us, uh, former uh, congressman representing the old uh, Arizona's 4th Congressional District. He is now the head of Chadig Associates. Uh, we have a mutual friend named Steve who um, said, ask John if he has a copy of a book his dad wrote. Your dad's book, uh, your dad's name was Stephen as well, called The Remnant, an old book, an old novel that uh, our mutual friends said is so relevant for today. And uh, bless you, sir. You brought me uh, uh, what looks like a first edition copy. It's got that great 1960s kind of covered, cut black and white cover on it. Um, The Remnant, a political novel by Stephen See, Shattuck, I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, so thank you for bringing that in. Your dad, your dad wrote, wrote a lot of books. He did. Uh, I think there were, I, I could miss this, I think there were nine all told. Yeah. So Yeah, including um, Whatever Happened to Goldwater, yeah. which I have, uh, which was, uh, <clears throat> I have used a great deal. Um, I've referred to that a great deal. And a historian, um, you may or may not know, Stephen Hayward. He teaches up at, yep. uh, you know, Steve. Steve Hayward is with the Powerline blog, and he teaches up at uh, Berkeley. He and I love going through uh, old 1964 uh, battles um, the, in the Goldwater, in the Barry Goldwater uh, primaries against uh, the Romney factions and the, and the, and the Rockefeller, Rockefeller factions. Right. And your dad does a great job of telling some of the stories in there and the backs and forth and how actually very decent Barry Goldwater was to those people who were calling him uh, extremist. People forget that the extremism and the defense of liberty uh, line was not about communists or Vietnam. It was uh, really about Rockefeller and Romney. And uh, who, who, I'm, I'm, I'm blanking on who, el- who else would have been part of that faction, but uh, the guy from Pennsylvania maybe. But anyway, uh, thank you and welcome back uh, to the studio. It's good to have you. Thank you for the book. Glad to be here. Yesterday, Joe Biden, President Biden, uh, announced his uh, bid for re-election, and there was some speculation as to whether he was going to do it. His press secretary, um, Karen Jean-Pierre, kind of got twisted up with her own tongue, um, as I guess is per (laughs) usual, yes, Uh, (laughs) playing to type when asked, she was asked, would he serve out all four years if he is re-elected? And she said, because of the Hatch Act, she didn't want to answer that. I have never heard so many invocations of the Hatch Act as I had in the last two years from the White House, John. But um, in his announcement, which was on video, not in front of a live audience, not with uh, any questions being asked uh, by reporters, he said, around the country, MAGA extremists are lining up to take on those bedrock freedoms, cutting Social Security that you've paid for your entire life while cutting taxes from the very wealthy, dictating what health care decisions women can make, banning books, and telling people who they can love, all while making it more difficult for you to be able to vote. Not one of those things is actually true, and we can go through it, but 
Have you ever seen a presidential announcement or re-election announcement that was so empty on your own successes and so hard on the opposition? It's just a very negative campaign announcement dressed up in the um, dressed up in the uh, language, or at least dressed up in the proscenium of of being the uniter, and, and it just doesn't wash, John. It just doesn't wash for me. His departure from his inaugural address specifically on the issue of being a uniter versus a divider is one of the most stunning things I've seen in in political life in my lifetime. Um, you know, politicians are always uh, scrutinized and often criticized for saying one thing and then doing another or saying one thing and then actually not doing it. Uh, and so people uh, kind of go eh, with derision, eh, he's a politician. And, and therefore, you just assume that what that means is nobody really expects him to keep his word because he's a politician. In this case, uh, it, it, it is shocking because uh, he was right in the sense that the nation needed a uniter uh, on the day of his inauguration. Um, and we were uh, very divided. And so the message was the appropriate message. But his uh, complete lack of any attempt whatsoever, whatsoever, to try to unite us is just amazing. And it's made more amazing by the claim that he stood there and said it. I'm a uniter, not a divider. And you look back at his career and he really he didn't say a lot of controversial things. He did kind of walk the middle road. Uh, I read a story yesterday that said the Biden of today you know, is, is nothing like the mm-hmm. Biden of his Senate career. Mm-hmm. He, he is a vessel for every radical idea in the past 20 years. I mean, he's he, he's carrying out the agenda, the mega agenda. No, I'm sorry. I mean, the woke agenda uh, to the degree that nobody thought he would do. And it is stunning. Um, And it makes you wonder if that isn't a strong piece of evidence that he's not really there. That in point of fact, he doesn't remember that he ever said, I'm a uniter, not a divider. And that uh, maybe he doesn't today realize that he is dividing, not uniting. And I guess the other point I'd make is that... um, I see this as the trend. Um, uh, toward the end of my career in Congress, I saw the division getting worse and worse. And the phrase identity politics yeah. came into play. Yeah. And, and for a long time, I tried to figure out, well, tell me what identity politics is. I'm not sure I understand what that means. And then as I began to think about it, it meant really dividing people. It is we look at your identity as we define it. And we work to divide you from anyone else. So uh, we tell people that, well, because you're uh, a woman uh, and not a man, then you are being harmed in this way that men aren't being divided from each other. And therefore, I need to come in and rescue you. Uh, We look at people who who are straight versus people who, in fact, uh, for whatever reason, uh, are either gay or lesbian or the whole lengthy litany, LBGTQ. Aren't there some new ones? Yeah, there are. Plus. Uh, (laughs) Plus. Yeah. Um, Well, because of that fact, then we we need to identify your grievances and make a big deal of them. 
Now, you you can make a str- pretty strong argument, I think, that those differences existed 10 years ago, 20 years ago, uh, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. Let's assume that in history, those differences have always been there. What's different now? And the answer is now, principally the Democratic Party and Democrat politicians want to turn the differences into disagreements and grievances. Yeah. And so we now have a politics which is all grievances. Um, when I was in Congress, there was a member of Congress, he's still there, from New Jersey, who never went to the floor of the House, never once that I watched him, went to the floor of the House and didn't openly criticize the Republican Party or Republicans in some way that accused them of being evil. Mm-hmm. I mean, he would go and say, all Republicans are crooked. Uh, all Republicans hate their mothers. All Republicans uh, hate uh, government. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and and he would do that every single speech. If he was talking about, you know, Flag Day, mm-hmm. he would have something in there that took a shot at Republicans by name. And I would argue that's where we are today. And I would argue that more and more Democrats are doing it. And I would argue that if you listen to uh the current president, Mr. Biden, and the way he talks politically, uh, he he chooses to attack so-called MAGA Republicans in virtually every speech. Yeah. He, he stood before, I think it was Independence Hall, isn't it? Wasn't that the Red yeah, Wall speech? Right, right. And gave the Red Wall speech in which he told uh, the election was very close, but he said. MAGA Republicans are more dangerous yep. than right. uh, uh, terrorists from right. the Middle East. Right. When have we ever heard a president stand up and say, and you need to be more afraid of them, Yes, right. Uh, say to the nation, well, half of you in this nation, roughly half of you, are a greater threat than our uh, radical terrorists mm-hmm. in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. I can't even imagine that kind of attack on his constituents. I I like what you said about – we'll take a quick commercial break and come back on this. I like what you said that in his inaugural speech he was correct to say we needed a uniter, but the truth is we still do. We don't have it. Absolutely. More than then. (laughs) More than then. We'll talk about that when we come right back because I think he has created further division. Uh, along racial lines, along other kinds of racial grievance and sexual grievance lines and lies that Republicans want to tell people who they can love and want to ban books. I mean, those are the lies that give. Yeah, these are the lies that give not only doubt uh, to to his to his sincerity, but create, I think, more division. We'll talk more about it with John Shattuck when we come right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. John Shattig is my guest. He is in studio. It's a delight to have him. Congressman, um, Joe Biden has given voice over the course of uh, several campaigns uh, about this, this, I don't know if it ever existed, but this time, this vaunted time in Washington where people from the opposite sides of the aisle could get together and be friendly and they didn't treat their uh, opponents as their enemies. Uh, I remember at the uh, McCain funeral here, John McCain funeral here, Joe Biden was giving that very speech just a couple years after he had said that Mitt Romney wanted to put black people back in chains. 
he was never the right water carrier for the sincerity of bipartisanship. You wrote it down yourself there, right? He becomes president of the United States and gives a speech in Georgia on voting rights. And he says, if you oppose his legislation on voting rights, as the Republicans were doing, you are the party of Bull Connor, you are the party of Jefferson Davis, you are the party of George Wallace. I think that's when he lost even a lot of, um, shall we say, mainstream media-type Republicans who were wanting to give him a chance and a shot. I remember Peggy Noonan uh, unloaded on him after that. But, but, but this, is, this is what we've become used to right now with Joe Biden is, is, is the, kind of, the kind of division that has worked well for the Democratic Party of late. I can't help but refer back to your comments in the previous segment where you talked about we've always had divisions. Uh, but the truth of the matter is we are probably on a one-on-one and individual basis as an American next to American basis, less, less racist, less sexist, less intolerant than we ever have been. And yet it's at that very moment when the Democrats seem to want to turn up that heat as much as possible to keep us as divided as possible. As Larry Elder likes to put it, the racial grievance, uh, the racial grievance uh, supply is much greater than the racial grievance demand. And it almost comes exclusively from the Democratic Party because this is their go to. This is their go to when we've overcome so many of these issues. When we you and I probably both knew I, I, I could I could tell you I did. Uh, we probably both knew Republicans in 08 who voted for Barack Obama just because they wanted to kind of get that racial thing behind us. Well, it didn't work. It didn't happen. And our while our country may be less racial or racially divided than ever, our politics isn't. Do you agree with that? Uh, I'm not I'm not sure. Well, I, maybe I flat completely disagree, but maybe I misunderstood the point. Um, I think that uh, in the past, in, in my lifetime, and it's gotten worse every day, we were less focused on what divided us. Okay. Um, in, in my view, you looked at post-World War II America, and the talk of the day was of, well, we're Americans, and we're Mm -hmm. proud of being Americans, Mm -hmm. and we focus on the things that unite us. Mm -hmm. We believe in uh, democracy. We believe in American institutions. We believe in capitalism. We believe in justice. Uh, We believe in fairness. And that's what we thought about as a nation, I think. Uh, Today, at least in politics, the whole concept of identity politics, in my opinion, is was created to be able to divide us uh, and and to be able to divide us uh, based and out of the, the that division, create grievances and then blame the other side uh, for those grievances and further divide the people. And, you know, I think we used to be focused on the things that brought us together, the you know, maybe it was uh, Chevy's baseball and apple pie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but today, nobody talks about it's not news to talk about anything that that brings us together. Okay. So, at least from my point of view, uh, 
we used to be one nation under God. And But and, I, I think we're close to saying the same thing, and maybe we're saying the exact same thing. We could talk like that and think like that when we were literally more racially divided on a one-on-one basis. Yes. We are now more racially united than we have ever been, whether yes. it's by polling or whether it's by behavior or whether it's by Absolutely. integration. And yet the political rhetoric the heat of the political rhetoric is more racial than we've ever been. I would agree with that. Completely. Yeah, that, that's kind of what I'm trying to say, because it seems to me that's really the only go to the Democrats have is this grievance. You, you put it well when you said this grievance society that, you know, we've gone from uh, <laughs> Joe Lewis having no problem signing up to fight for America to Colin Kaepernick saying, you know, he won't stand for the national anthem. One in a time of great racial segregation, one in a time of the greatest racial integration any society has ever seen. That's the problem of politics. That's not the problem of our people. No, I think that's right. The the people are in many ways uh, more aware of their fellow citizens, more aware of uh, the inherent advantages in a diverse society representing lots of different people and trying to be fair to all of those different people. So in personal conduct, I think we've gotten better and maybe in personal relationships we've improved. I would agree with that. But but the politicians, instead of reflecting that, they might realize what else now can they offer. Right, right. Uh, so they better, they better whip up uh, some things they can offer. I'm going to go back to Washington and – uh, fix this uh, terrible treatment of this group or that group mm-hmm. or the other group, mm-hmm. uh, which is not necessarily the task of government in the first place if you have the rules set so that they're fair and require equal treatment uh, under the law. So uh, it's, it's, it is uh, – uh, both are kind of almost conflicting with each other. Uh, on the one hand – uh, we are all striving to be better citizens mm-hmm. and to live up to both moral precepts and uh, human precepts, including the law, uh-huh. in our treatment of each other. And yet uh, the politicians are telling us that we are much worse people. Yeah. I mean, it's an odd thing where we have to go and seemingly invent racism where it doesn't exist or create new kinds of racism where it never would have occurred to anyone. You hear this a lot from, uh, say, our Secretary of Tans- Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, <laughs> talking about you know the racism behind the way we build our highways and streets. Uh, you saw it in, in, in one of the Build Back Better pieces of legislation, tree equity. Whoever, whoever thought of – it must be an awfully luxurious society that can worry about tree equity is what I'm trying to say, I guess, John. Um, we never used to talk about criminal offenders and criminal victims the way we talk about them now and give attention to certain kinds of victims and give attention to certain kinds of assailants or alleged assailants of those victims based on their race. We are so oddly um, racially uh, cognizant in a way that we were never meant to be and that the entire effort of the 60s and 50s was to get us past that it's odd that the Democratic Party wants to drag us right back into it. Can we pick up on that when we come back on the other side of this? Absolutely. In, in a way, the limits have come off of political speech. Yeah. In my heart, I don't believe that Joe Biden actually believed that Republicans wanted 
if they could, to put blacks back in chains. Right. But he was willing to say it. Yeah, let, let, let's put, yes, that, and that's its own political crime. Let's pick up on that when we come back. I'm Seth Leaves, and he's John Shattuck. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Liebson show. Congressman Shattuck was making a great point on the way to the break, talking about political rhetoric and extremism. When Joe Biden said uh, to a black audience, a mostly black audience, that Mitt Romney in 2012 wanted to put you all back in chains, you're making the point that you know damn well Joe Biden didn't believe that in his heart, which makes the crime all the worse, that he was trying to create uh, racial resentment uh, and play the politics of race where it didn't otherwise exist. I'll throw that to you to comment on with an added lesson here for conservatives and Republicans. This was about Mitt Romney. This is the kind of Republican Democrats say we should run more of, you know, run more like Mitt Romney, run more people like John McCain. They say the same things about them that they said about Goldwater in 64. Anyway, your, your point. It, it, it's a it's a sad uh, episode in American politics when uh, the rhetoric becomes more and more and more and more extreme and uh, people say it make uh, remarks that are gratuitous that they that they themselves know aren't true in order to either gain or retain power and society American society has to decide, well, we're going to reject that. Mm-hmm. Um, if, if, if to be elected or if to be popular uh, or if to be uh, listened to, you have to say the most extreme thing. And, and, and I'll admit, uh, even back in 94, I said some pretty tough stuff, but I would never have said something like Joe Biden said about reverse about the Democrats. It's just, uh, you know. Somebody, one of your listeners is going to say, well, I've heard Chetig say this thing. Which, I, can't, I can't think of anything like that that but, you've ever said. I can't think of it. In any event, the, the <laughs> point is it's – thank you. Uh, you know, we're dragging the entire governance of the nation trying to – where we are in fact trying to build consensus and, and do the right thing for all Americans. And we – to get there, we're – Engaging in extreme rhetoric. There's a there's a <clears throat> there's a um, a cheapness to this kind of politics. Um, you remember in the '60s, Richard Hofstadter wrote that book and had the thesis, the paranoid the paranoid style in American politics. That and it was about the Republican Party that they were playing off the fears of people uh, to get support. The idea was you want your population, you want your votaries, you want your prospective voters to be paranoid about the other side. Um, and, and I think his thesis was entirely wrong and overwrought when it was about the Republicans of the 1960s. But I think it would be very accurate about the Democrats today. I think they are trying to create a paranoia in this population or in their prospective voters or in their voteries to be paranoid about. I mean, what is this notion that MAGA extremists. Uh, it's interesting. MAGA as an acronym stands for Make America Great Again. Who would have ever thought that saying making America great again should be a criticism, should be a critique, should Bad be a pejorative, right. right? That's kind of a tell on them. Don't we all want to make America great You would again? think, right? Um, 
or even the notion that America first, I guess they found that MAGA played better than America first as a, as a pejorative. But it is an odd thing to say those kinds of things. It is an odd thing to bring back arguments from the 1950s that we want to ban books or tell people who they can love. These are all inventions that are creating a kind of paranoia. At the same time, they tell us that Americans are you know, divided, have moved to extremes, can no longer get together. They're the ones bringing the torches to the haze of straw. I mean, to the stacks of straw hay, don't you think? I do. Uh, which, again, I relate back to the – it's the politics of division. It yeah. is for it's them, a cheap politics, though, isn't it? Oh, it's cheap. It's very cheap politics. I mean, the, the reality of politics is you present an idea, okay? I believe in less government and lower taxes. And then you engage in a discussion of whether that's a good policy and you illustrate your arguments for why you think that's a good policy. You, you don't – so – I, the beginning was to focus on how do we improve society? How do we make the lives of every American better? Um, if, on the other hand, your focus is on, um, well, this group of our society is being mistreated by that group of our society, uh, the minority is being mistreated by the majority, and you don't offer to a fix, you don't offer we can make America better by you know, a new civil rights bill – you instead say, and by the way, that proves that the person uh, who doesn't believe this is necessarily evil. Well, you're not offering a solution. You're not trying to make anything better. This, this, a lot of people woke up to this when you first were elected to Congress in 1994, when you saw people like Charles Rangel saying, well, we used to talk about men in white sheets. Now we talk about welfare reform. Let's pick up on that when we come right back. I'm Seth. He's John Shaddy. We'll be right back. John Shaddy is my guest, former congressman, head of uh, Shaddy Associates. Um, John, when the Republicans in your class came to power in 94, in the 94 election, came to power in 1995, that's when I first noted a new rhetoric from the Democrats, a new rhetoric of desperation almost, where, as I was saying, the one comment that stands out, but there were very many like them, people like Charles Rangel was saying, well, they used to talk about, they used to come in white sheets, now they talk about welfare reform. They, it, it was almost as if conservatism, uh, conservatism as expressed by the Republican Party uh, was not, was, was, was not, was not anything they ever thought would have purchase in this country, uh, was not anything they thought should have purchase in this country. They kind of thought they owned the entire realm, the Democrats and the liberals did, and that if you were going to be a Republican, you know, we'll tolerate something like a George H.W. Bush, but maybe not a Dan Quayle and certainly not a Newt Gingrich and certainly not a John Shattuck, which was really – the inheritance of the modern conservative movement as handed down to us by Bill Buckley, your daddy, Barry Goldwater, and Ronald Reagan. They thought they got rid of all that. When it came back, they had nowhere to go but the racial card. Seems to me. Seems to me. Um, clearly, they were of the view that conservatism as articulated by Bill Buckley, Ronald Reagan, Barry Goldwater, um, had been discredited right and essentially banished 
And they had held the majority in the U.S. House for 40 years. And the Republicans who were in the U.S. House in that span learned to take what the Democrats would allow to fall off the edge of the table. Yes, you can have uh, the remnants. You can have, you know, a little bit here. We'll satiate you by giving you something, but not major policy. And I believe that uh, my class, but maybe more importantly than my class, Newt Gingrich himself and the people he surrounded himself with, Dick Armey and Tom DeLay, scared the bejeebies out of them. Yeah. Uh, they suddenly thought, well, wait a minute. Was it a Southern thing, you think, a little bit? Or was it uh, a no holds barred kind was, of thing? I think it was. Temperament? Newt brought intellectual arguments. Yeah. He had, he, he brought to the table real debates. He didn't come to the table accepting that his had to be the minority position or that he had to continue to live in the minority of the House and accept whatever was offered. The minority, and I'm not talking about racial minority, I'm talking about yeah. the political minority in either house uh, really does, uh, is forced to just accept what they're given. And most, a lot of people just say, okay, that, this is what I get under this system. We didn't win the majority, so I need to just take it. Newt, to his great credit, said, no, it's time to fight back. And he was very different than his Republican predecessors. Um, he did not think it was being disloyal to say your ideas are wrong. Um, and the, you talk about welfare reform. The welfare reform that my class demanded was a work requirement. Mm -hmm. and, and to those of us in the class, it wouldn't have a we would not have conceived that that was a negative thing. As a matter of fact, if you believe what conservatives believe about the human uh, character, about human nature, um, allowing people to work or requiring them to work is actually giving them a benefit. Mm -hmm. So on the one hand, okay, we're going to continue to give you food stamps or uh, welfare allotments, but we're going to add to it that you need to work part of the time, uh, you need to be making an effort to get a real job, that wasn't a punishment imposed for the reward of the money. That was, we can improve society, and those people will feel better about themselves if they're producing something. And they'll learn, wow, this is kind of fun to be relied upon. My boss, you know, I, you know, I gave out 45 pamphlets yesterday, and he only thought I could get out 30, and so he complimented me, and I went home and felt good. So that kind of welfare reform we saw as good for all of society, uh, and, and Newt helped push it through, and Clinton fought it and fought it and fought it, and then it passed. And I'm stunned that the Democrats later repealed it. Yeah. it it's the best proof probably ever uh, that the Democrats want – a dependent society. They want a permanent underclass. They, they want a permanent underclass. Yeah. They believe to the hearts of, to the depths of their souls that they are smarter than the hoi polloi or the average people, so they should be making decisions for those people. And to give them money is not without any work requirement is not corrupting them. That's what the Democrats believe. It's it's just giving the Democrats more power. We'll decide for those people how much money they get and we won't put impose anything 
as a part of that package to enable them to make their lives better. So it is stunning to me that they, re- they repeal it. And that to this day, no. they are adamantly against a work requirement, no matter how modest right. it is. Right. Uh, and and uh, yeah, I think very politics changed very much and very much for the worse. And it does prove that Democrats uh, want power over you. They don't want to empower you. Yeah, that's a nice way to put it. That's a nice construction. I remember those welfare debates in 95, 96. And it is, it is the untold story of how, how, the, how the Democrats have slowly unwound each and every one of them. It was probably the greatest, I don't know, probably the greatest uh, social or domestic program uh, reform, so greatest social or domestic uh, political reform we had engaged in since the civil rights movement, uh, probably. Yeah. Uh, it's been reversed, and now we have an entire army of almost 10 million working class men who just won't work, just don't want to work, won't show up to work, and are happy to take their Medicaid checks and other welfare COVID checks. A vastly, and, and I don't mean to use that word lightly, a vastly more dependent right. uh, society. Right. Uh, a more a greater willingness to yes I'll take the benefits sure. and and those benefits I've earned those benefits I'm entitled to them uh, and they never ha- perhaps go through an entire life never understanding the rewards of work or of productivity or of contributing yeah yeah um, the idea of having people married to the government rather than uh, the kind of stuff people like Robert Rector were pushing so hard on. People at the Brookings Institute were pushing so hard for, which was the notion that marriage uh, ra- to to one another, mar- marriage in an intact family, is 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 the best preventer of poverty. Um, is the exact opposite of what the social democratic ideal is, which is marriage to the government, and they and th- and that's what they did. They traded marriage to individuals to marriage to the government, and and and, and that is how they sustain themselves. You can marry the government and it will take care of you and it will lift from you the burden of making your own decisions. Yeah. And so we'll, we'll make the vast majority of those decisions for you. And oh, by the way, we won't let you have a voice in what they are. That's exactly right. Thank you, sir. Yep. As always, love having you. John Witherspoon once warned uh, his students, one of his students was James Madison, uh, don't uh, live useless and die contemptible. But that does seem to be what the <laughs> Democratic Party's idea of welfare reform is. Kind of what we will want. have you live useless and die contemptible. John Shadding. But you're empowering you. them. Yes. They get to make all those decisions. Yes, yes, you know, yes, they, yes, yes, yes. People and, who don't know your name get to run your life. Yeah. You know, it's like the Including the shower temperature, right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I got the remnant. I'm so excited. <laughs> Whether it's bank failures or stock market volatility or inflation and possible recession, our friends at Y-Refi are offering you an investment in a portfolio with a high fixed rate of return that's not correlated to the Fed or the stock market. Investment where you can turn your monthly income on or off. You can compound it, whatever you like, with no loss of principal if you need your money back at any time. Think of that freedom. An investment where there are no fees. It is a secure, collateralized portfolio that offers, as I say, an up to 10.25% rate of return. That's 10 and a quarter percent. Why Refi is based here locally. I encourage you to stop by their offices on Scottsdale Road in the 101. I've been there. And I can tell you, you will not get 
sales pitch. No one's going to ask you to sign anything. When you meet with the team, by refi, you'll see why I like them so much and trust them so much, and you can too. A due diligence approved firm, you can check them out at investyrefi.com. That's the word invest, the letter Y, then refy.com. Or give them a call at 888-YREFI-34. That's 888-YREFI-34. I love these visits with Congressman Shattuck to walk down the memory lane, not only of the Gingrich Revolution, but what his daddy was so involved in with the Goldwater Revolution uh, in the 1960s. Because the the, the partisanship and uh, the rhetoric uh, has maybe changed mutatis mutandis, uh, given the times, but the heat of it hasn't. And if there's one overriding lesson, it's this. Note that the Democrats' rhetoric becomes all the more strident the better we are, the better we Republicans are, the better we conservatives are, the more we offer to people that, might, that they might want to purchase, the more purchase we have on the people with our um, ideas uh, with our ability to communicate. Look how hard they went after, for example, as John was saying. Look how hard they went after Newt Gingrich. They were not used to this kind of intellectual academic who could make the case for conservatism popular. You know, to them, Republicans should have been, you know, your Arlen Specters or your uh, your Lincoln Chafees or or your George H. W. Bushes. But we gave them, we gave them. From time to time, we gave them, whether it was Goldwater, Reagan, Gingrich, the Tea Party, Trump, DeSantis, we gave them what Phyllis Schlafly a long time ago said, we owed our people, we owed our country, which was a choice, not an echo. Yeah, there are two parties in this country. It's our duty to make sure that they know it too. Until tomorrow, God bless you all. Thank you for spending some of your day with us. I'm Seth Leibson and class is dismissed.